Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. say that by faith because looking at it and when I look at back at it now I wonder how I made it through all that um, my husband and I were living in Northern California and he was a logger one day while my husband was at work I was uh, working um, just inside a large picture window in our living room and our little son was right outside the door playing with a kitten. I decided to finish a little a short uh, sewing project and I looked down to take a couple of stitches and looked up and he wasn't there. Panic started to set in to my heart and um, I had a strong sense that I would not see my son alive again. And we continued searching, and the police force brought in the um, search and rescue teams. And also, since we lived nearby two rivers, the Klamath River being one of them, um, they brought in divers as well to search the rivers to no avail. And this went on, the search went on for about two weeks. And uh, I think it was probably after about the third week, I kind of gave up that he would be found anytime soon. And I think the law enforcement agencies more or less gave up as well. In the meantime, my husband decided to turn to alcohol to uh, worked through his grief and consequently was taken away. So I was left there in this uh, unfamiliar territory with no one, and then there was no Adventist church around, which I had grown up Adventist, so I uh, did not have a church or a pastor to go to. I thought that the best way to handle this whole situation would be to commit suicide. And so I sat down in the bathroom and I had the pills in my hand and I really had a talk with the Lord and I, I bared my soul to the Lord and told him, I said, I can't endure this. I don't know why you're letting me go through this. I'm angry with you for letting this happen to me and I feel abandoned and I have no one to go to and you're not helping me. And I looked down in my hand and looked at the pills and at that precise moment, a thought came to mind. This thought was, have you asked me if it's okay for you to do this? And I said, well, no, I haven't. Well, in my possession from my mother's demise, I had her Bible. 
I thought of going to it, and I felt like that was um, a prompting from the Lord. Uh, I opened it up to Jeremiah 31, 16, and 17, and I'll summarize it for you. And it says, Weep no more, refrain your eyes from tears, because in the end your children will be bought, brought back from the land of the enemy. And that was when I saw the markings there on those two verses with my name written in the column beside them. And that was because my mother had been praying for me for years. It was a process, you know, for this whole healing thing. And so I came about slowly as, as far as my faith walk goes. Then my husband uh, came back and we were reunited, living in Riverside, and then we got the call. This is three and a half months later that we got the call that our little son, his remains had been found. We were asked to come to Northern, back to Northern California and identify his remains in two places. One was with the sheriff's office and the other was with UC Davis where his remains had been taken. Just horrific experience to see your child there. I think I'd pretty much passed through the anger and resentment toward God. And I knew that he was helping me pass through that. As the story began to unfold, I was able to come across persons who had been familiar with these types of certain groups and organizations that did these events where children are kidnapped for the purpose of taking their life. I was still struggling a bit with walking with the Lord because of the fear and the anxiety now that I experienced from having this event happen. My husband and I decided not to have any more children because we neither one of us just didn't want to go through anything like that again. So we did the typical routine for not having any more children. And um, the Lord surprised us, and I became pregnant. The interesting thing that I knew when I became pregnant was I was confident that I was having a son. And it gave me joy. And here the Lord took something that was so negative and took my fears and addressed them right where I was. People would say, Donna, don't just believe you're going to have a son. You need to plan to have a daughter. And I didn't. I had a wonderful son born in 1970. And this is probably about three years later. And we were happy, and the Lord took away all my fears about raising another child. My husband never became a Christian, and due to alcoholism, it became unsafe for our son and I to stay with him, and we had to divorce and because of safety reasons. Well, over the 30 years or so when I was going through the healing process of my son's demise, I was also faced with some other tragic events, such as my father being uh, shot, and then later on, our son, when he was, uh, my second son was to find out that my ex-husband had also been murdered. So these were things that I had to process as well along my journey of healing from my son's demise. And 2 Samuel 
seven was probably my founding text because every time at every event and every stage, I could look back and say, thus far has the Lord helped me. And I did ask the question, why? To God, why, did the, why does this happen? And my conclusion of that matter is this. God has a plan for every individual on this planet, even murderers. If they need to live on without ever going to jail or serving time, so be it, because God has a plan for them too. They might be my neighbor in heaven. I never know, because there's no prosecution that can bring my son back. There's no law that can, you know, even if the person died, there would be nothing that would soothe my soul without bringing my son back. And I was, at that point, confident and comfortable with the Lord, having allowed him to go, and having allowed my father to go, and let it be. I have to say, just plain and simple, you have the confidence in God, you believe in him. He says he will not give you more than you can bear. Humanly looking at that, it would seem like it's more than you could bear. But he said it wasn't. Therefore, I am here. And it just has to be that simple for me. We have to linger for a moment or two to digest what we've just seen and heard. There are two realities that emerge for me. The first one is this. Every Sabbath day when I have the wonderful privilege of shaking your hand and seeing your smile and welcoming you to church, I always have in the back of my mind the thought, one never knows the story behind this face. I greeted Donna yet again this morning before first service. I was struck by her joy, by the spirit of Jesus that resides within her, and thought if you didn't have the chance to sit down and listen, you would never know the pain. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Glory, hallelujah. Every one of you has a story. Here's the second thing that comes clear to me. We all desire to be faithful. Our heart's yearning is to be faithful. Faithful in our relationships, in our homes, in our places of work, in our country, in our walk with Jesus. So how do we do that? In the face of, on the one hand, temptation, and on the other hand, tragedy. How do we live faithful lives? It has been said that preparation is key to any moment of success. Adequate preparation. Abraham Lincoln said, if you give me six hours to chop down a tree, I'll spend the first four hours sharpening the ax. Preparation. In an interview with the Wall Street Journal, the comedian Jerry Seinfeld 
told about the process through which he goes in preparing for a stand-up routine. It's quite striking to consider the literally countless hours that he spends going through possible scenarios, possible adaptations to his monologue, changes. He said, by the time I've done, I probably have thousands of pages of things, material, ideas that I use and that I don't use. I want to read you these words that he said to the interviewer. Seinfeld said, I don't want to... I don't want people to know how much work I put into it. I just think it's more fun when it seems off the cuff. In other words, the ease with which it happens is a bit deceptive because it's not easy. It is required preparation. He goes on to add, you're always trying to trim everything down to absolute rock, solid rock. I will sit there for 15 minutes trying to make one syllable shorter. Preparation. They say that if you are going to succeed in anything in life, it requires preparation. In fact, I would suggest to you that anytime you see somebody do something that's somewhat remarkable, that's very remarkable, and to do it with ease, I would almost guarantee you that there has been untold preparation behind that moment. Just a few moments ago, We had five gentlemen stand here on this stage and open their mouths, and somehow, somewhere from within them, there emerged a sound that, have mercy. Preparation. Or consider Tom Brady, largely thought to be the best NFL quarterback of all time. Mark Slareth, a 12-year NFL veteran, was asked about Brady on his radio talk show. What do you think about Brady? How do you make sense of all the things that he has done and how remarkable is his run? Here's what Slareth said. It's incredible. Brady is not satisfied by success. I think that's the most important thing, the thing that stands out to me, said Slareth. To continue, listen to these words, to continue to Prepare to continue to grind. Brady's quote is, if you want to beat me, you better be ready to lose your life because I've already given up mine. Brady's former backup quarterback said the thing he learned most from Tom Brady is that playing quarterback is not a job, it's a lifestyle. Where have I heard that before? And you got to be willing to commit your life to it. Brady wakes up, and it's all about what am I going to do to be the best quarterback I can be. That means diet. That means exercise. That means hydration. And Sundays aren't the problem. Monday through Saturday, that's the problem. You get to the point in your career where you say to yourself, I don't want to prepare anymore. If I could just show up on Sunday, that would be great. But I don't want to go through the grind, the grind of preparing for next Sunday. But Brady still eats that grind, says Slareth, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and it's one of the most amazing things I've ever witnessed. Preparation. Preparing for the game, for the test, for the concert, for the conflict. Preparing to be faithful. Our summer series for camp meeting is entitled faithful. 
We're taking it one step at a time. We started out with where it begins, and we noted that all covenant faithfulness begins in the heart of God. Anything from our part is response, God-inspired response. That's where it begins. We noted why it matters. It matters because we live in a dark world, and every act of faithfulness lights a candle, even though it's hard to light that candle when we're the only ones doing it. But our faithfulness can inspire someone else to faithfulness. That's why it matters. We proceeded on from there last week to ask, what does it look like? And we noted that faithfulness for most of us is not something that is experienced in the grand, magnificent moments, but in the mundane moments, in the humble and true attitudes of the heart. And now today we ask, how? How do we live a faithful life? I'm going to go out on a limb. It's a big limb. I don't think it's going to break off. And make an assumption. I'm going to make the assumption that if I were to ask this morning, how many of you truly, in your heart of hearts, you can say this honestly about yourselves, how many of you truly want to live a faithful life? I think all across this sanctuary, hands would go up. In fact, maybe every single hand would be raised. I want to be faithful. In fact, who among us wants to know that we come to the end of our days and our family as they choose the wording to put on our headstone say, why don't we put on there the word faithless? <laughs> Nobody wants that. We want to be faithful. And so we sit in a church service like this one and we commit ourselves. We say, God, I want to be faithful to you. And then the week comes, an unexpected trial or trauma or tragedy, such as in the story of Donna, unfolds or temptation comes we've never really done enough about our anger and so we blow up and we injure yet someone else we essentially stab a colleague in the back by joining that little clique that gathers around and gossips somebody clicks on an online pornographic site somebody says here's a way I can cook the books and get away with it and then it's done. And the guilt descends. And we cry out to God and say, God, I'm sorry. I want to be faithful, but how? How? In the midst of trial or tragedy, temptation or difficulty, how can I be faithful? I want to suggest to you that the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, offers us an answer to that question, how? Now, as we turn to Hebrews, it's important to remember what the letter to Hebrews is. It's a document to the superiority of Jesus. It sings the magnificence of his being, of his praise. It, in essence, is saying he is greater, he is better, he is grander, he is more glorious than any other act of religious ritual or sacrifice or ceremony. Jesus is the top. That's the letter to the Hebrews. Here in the fourth chapter, the writer comes to a place where is unfolded what I would suggest is an answer to our question, how do I live faithfully? 
But before reading our text for the day, I want to read the previous verse that closes off the previous section because it sets the stage for what the writer is going to say. So Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, last verse of the previous section, says this. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We read that, and we say, well, now that's just plain scary. Here I am trying to live a faithful life. I know I blow it, but nobody else needs to know. And then you come along and you say to me, remember, God is watching. He sees absolutely everything. Everything is laid bare before him. And we say, come on, now I'm feeling paranoid. You mean God is watching? Actual incident, Asbury College, Wilmore, Kentucky. In the cafeteria line, somebody had set down a large bowl of red delicious apples right at the head of the line. But whatever cafeteria worker had done that had attached a little handwritten sign that said, take only one apple, God is watching. (laughs) People went through the line. They came to the other end of the line, and there they found a large plate of freshly baked peanut butter cookies. And some wag had come along and put a sign there that said, take as many as you want. God is watching the apples. (laughs) (laughs) But not according to Hebrews 4. According to Hebrews 4, God is watching you and me and the apples and the cookies. Everything is laid bare before him. Now, for all the good desires we might have toward faithfulness, that is scary. Because every moment of lost temper, every time behind the wheel of the car, every word of gossip, all of those realities, those moments when our faithlessness is shown, God is watching. I mean, am I the only one, or is that a little scary? So now then, what do we do? Now we go to our text for today. With that cheerful piece of background, now we come to Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. Therefore, it says, now you remember the rule of biblical interpretation. Whenever you see a therefore, you've got to ask what it's there for. So why is this therefore, therefore? It's saying God is watching everything. And because of that, I want to tell you how to get help in living the life of faithfulness. So this is what it says. Therefore, verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now, just a parenthetical comment there. Those words, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, you know what that's saying? Be faithful. Let us be faithful. And that word firmly, it's a very strong Greek word. One scholarly resource says the meaning of that word is hold on to that as for dear life. So remembering that, let's reread that. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have 
one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If I were to summarize that brief paragraph, it is saying, you need help? Don't let go of your desire to be faithful regardless of what you've done and regardless of the fact that God knows of your failure. Don't let it go. But come to the throne of grace because help is available. That's the essence of the passage. But now let's break it down into three pieces. It'll help us get more clearly in mind what the writer is saying. I think it's telling us why we should approach the throne of grace, when we should approach the throne of grace, and what happens when we approach the throne of grace. So we begin with, why should we approach the throne of grace? I want to reread verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Why should we approach the throne? Simply put, because in God we find the strength to live faithfully. In reconciliation with God, we find the peace to give us joy in life. In knowing of the presence of God, we find power to walk into whatever the future may hold. In other words, we need connection with God. But now here's the problem. Even Hebrews itself says, our God is a consuming fire. It is a fearful thing, said the prophet, to fall into the hands of the living God. And so it's frightening if you haven't been faithful to come before God. What we need is a pontifex, to use the Latin word. Pontifex. It's the word that's often translated priest. I understand it more literally means bridge builder. One who brings together two separate parties. One who reconciles, who serves as the go-between. We need a pontifex if somehow we are to get into the very presence of God. Somebody who can step into that space. Now, one of the realities about go-betweens is that they have to understand both sides. You know that if you speak a second language. If you speak a second language, without doubt, there has been a time when you have had to translate. If you're going to translate, you have to speak both to be able to do it. And the better you can speak both, the more accurate will be your translation. I read of a man traveling in another country, well-to-do man, was speaking to a group of people through a translator. He told what he thought was a very funny story, took him a bit of time to tell it. The translator translated it in about two sentences, and everybody died laughing. And after he was done, he said to him, what, what did, there's no way you told that whole story. What did you say, and why did they laugh? He said, oh, it was easy. I just said to the group, it was such a long story, I didn't want to bother with that. So I just said to the group, this rich man, really rich man, just told a funny story. Do what you think is appropriate. 
So everybody laughed. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for somebody who is willing to go the distance. So on the one side, it has to be somebody who knows the heart of God. Knows the mind of God. Has entered into the world of God. And Hebrews 4.14 says, Jesus has ascended to the heavens. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is himself God. He understands the aching, yearning heart of God for his people. He understands what it is to create and then be ignored. What it is to love and be pushed aside. What it is to reach out and to be spurned. He understands what it is to come to his own, to love them so much that he comes to his own, and yet to have it said about him, his own did not receive him. He understands that. He understands it so well that he could, when he walked this world, say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So there is no problem on that side of the relationship. We have in Jesus someone who knows the heart of God intimately and eternally. But then what about the other side of the equation? What about the human side? What about our side? Well, notice again verse 15 of Hebrews 4. The author writes, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Summary, he understands everything. And maybe you want to say, well, now wait a minute. How could that be? How can he understand the depth of the temptation with which I struggle? Something that I've been fighting for years. How can he understand that? Does he know the true strength of what it is to be tempted? Well, maybe we could think about it this way. I have a little device up here that Enrique Ramirez, one of our wonderful maintenance crew members, set up for me and made for me. This is something that in Spanish is called toques, which means shocks. English, they have a word for it called a dimmer. Now, what this is, is when you turn that wheel up, the degree of electricity coursing through the wire and into these big bolts that I know one of you wants to hold in your hands increases and becomes more intense. You with me? Nobody's making eye contact. <laughs> now, I want to show you. <laughs> let me just make sure this thing is not plugged in here. Because there is a light on this. Oh, no, that's a reflection. Okay, well, I'm, I'm okay then. I had the crew test this out yesterday afternoon, and Doug Mace, Doug Mace tested it, and, and we were talking about him coming up. He called me an hour after. He says, I'm still tingling. <laughs> I don't think I should go up there. <laughs> So what happens is this. By the way, they do this at carnivals and fairs, those kinds of things. You can find them, I'm told. I haven't seen them yet, but you can find them on the Internet. Just to see who can withstand the greatest degree of electricity. 
Now, let me just make sure this is not on here. All right, we're good. If you see somebody coming out from back there to plug something in, you let me know. So imagine we have 10 or 12 of us holding these. They're all hooked, hooked up to the same dimmer, and we're standing across the front of the stage here. Each one has one of these in our hands. And then the person who is manning the wheel begins to turn it up. Slowly but surely. And you're watching the people here. And you're seeing people start to grimace, start to shake, and they're trying to hold on. You see people dropping it across the stage, and they just keep turning it up, turning it up, turning it up. It gets higher and higher. It's almost halfway now. And almost everybody has dropped their bolts. One or two are still hanging on, gritting their teeth, grimacing, shaking, trembling, but they're determined to win. Turns it up a bit more. And now the last person drops it. Can't do that. Except for one. On the end down there is Jesus. He's holding. And the operator keeps turning and turning and turning. He's holding. Sweating, as it were, drops of blood, but holding. He will defeat this. Keeps turning and turning. Jesus still holds. And finally, the operator turns it to the limit. It will not go anymore. And Jesus still holds him in his hands. And then the operator says, That's all I got. It won't go any further. That's the full power. And Jesus throws them on the ground and says, Then I have conquered the greatest strength that could ever be brought against me. Now let me ask you a question. Of those people gathered here on the platform, who knows the true strength of temptation of that electrical current only one the one who never gave in he understands every moment when you said I can't do it anymore he's been there and way beyond that says the writer to the Hebrews is the one who is reaching across the gulf created between humanity and divinity, fully understanding both sides and bringing them together because he understands both profoundly. He is the one, says the writer to the Hebrews, to whom, if you wish to be faithful, you must come. He'll help you. That's why we should come. Now a question. When should we come? First question was why. Our second question is when? When do we come? I want you to notice verse 16 again. It says this. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I'd actually like to read that again, only this time from the New Living Translation that renders those words in a particularly poignant way. This is how it renders them. So let us come boldly, 
That means now, here, today, in the present, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There will we, we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. That could be a minute from now, an hour from now, a day from now, a week from now. What the text is saying is, come now, prepare now for what comes then. When do we come? A friend of mine said, we move through time in a vehicle called now. That's when we come. As we drive in that vehicle called now, we are constantly coming to the throne of grace. Constantly approaching Jesus. Think of it this way. Do you remember dial-up modems? I know you've tried to forget them, but you remember dial-up modems. For those of you who are a bit younger, that's how we used to access the Internet. Every time you wanted to get, the, get on the Internet, I can remember doing it. It was, at least what I had, was a protracted process. It took a while to get connected. Now we have instant connection, consistent, constant connection. All you have to do is click on the mouse and boom, you're on. Constantly there. Some of us try to live our Christian lives with a dial-up modem. When we get into trouble, that's when we run in, try to dial up, try to find what we need. It takes too long. By the time it happens, we're already in trouble. We've already failed. What the writer to the Hebrews is saying, remember, we move through time in a vehicle called now. He says, now approach the throne of grace. Now, now, now. Constant connection. That's when we approach. Our lives become a matter of an open-hearted dialogue and conversation with God. Now, that's our second question. Why should we come? Because he is an understanding high priest who understands God and understands us. When should we come? We should come now. Every now of our lives. Third question, what happens when we come? What happens when we come? You notice what verse 16 said. We will find grace and mercy to help us when we need it. Are you in trouble? Are you in difficulty? Tragedy has erupted in your life. Temptation is threatening to overwhelm you. Then think about these words. Some of my favorite words from the pen of a woman named Ellen White. Listen to what she wrote. Nothing is apparently more helpless, yet really more invincible, than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies wholly on the merits of the Savior. God would send every angel in heaven to the aid of such a one rather than allow him to be overcome. That's what happens when we come. 
That great high priest unites our hand to the hand of God and says, you will be upheld, you will be strengthened. Now, I understand. You say, but I have tried that and I fail. Then do it in other ways. Scripture calls on the necessity of community. Maybe it's a communal group that will gather with you, hear your pain, pray together, so that, as James puts it, your sins might be healed and forgiven. A person of accountability. A friend to walk the road with you. I don't know which method God will use. I don't know which way Jesus will move into your life, but his promise is he will. Do you want faithfulness? Then, then do preparation now. Because what happens is that heaven sends power. I remember Morris Vinden, Maury Vinden, telling about a student who approached him one day, a student who wanted to live a faithful life, a student who wanted to grow, to be more mature in his walk with Jesus, and said to Pastor Vinden, can you tell me a way that I can grow, that I can become more mature, that I can be more faithful? And please, by the way, please, don't, don't give me any of this, you know, read your Bible and pray and share kind of stuff. I want something practical, something that will work. And Vinden said he looked at it thought about what he had said. And it struck him that this was much like a young boy coming to a physician, maybe his pediatrician, and saying, I want to grow up to be big and tall and strong like my daddy. Can you tell me how to do that? And please don't tell me, you know, eat healthy and exercise and sleep. I want something that will work. <laughs> then they said, that's exactly what it was. If you want to consistently approach the throne of grace, then the way you do it is with a Bible in your hand, a prayer on your lips, and an open heart. That consistently comes before God. In fact, I will tell you, I have serious question, serious question, that if you remove those elements from any of our lives, if we could ever live any kind of life that resembles the discipleship journey. Without those three simple things, reading, praying, sharing. In fact, if what the writer to Hebrews is saying here is correct, if I understand this writer correctly, then we could go so far as to say this. Your battles over faithfulness or faithlessness, your wars with temptation, the challenges that you will face in times of trial and tragedy, all of those are won or lost before the battle ever begins. They are won or lost in those early morning moments when you make decisions about whether or not to come to the throne of grace. Henry and Richard Blackaby write about that in an excellent book of theirs. My wife put me onto this, Spiritual Leadership, Moving People Onto God's Agenda. Think about these words in this context. They write, When Job entered a dark valley of tragedy, 
losing his children, his health, as well as everything he owned, that was not the time for him to hastily seek a closer relationship with God so he would have strength for his trials. You with me? That wasn't the time. In those tumultuous moments, either Job had a healthy relationship with God or he did not. When it appeared that Abraham would lose his only son, when, Aunt, when Hannah desperately longed for a child but could not have one, when David's son rebelled against him, each of them sought solace from God, and their vibrant relationship with him sustained them. Their walk with God was already a vital part of their lifestyle, so they were able to overcome incredible adversities. These biblical heroes were secure in the knowledge that they could trust God implicitly. Why? Because day by day they trained. Day by day they prepared. In the now moments of their lives, they came to the throne of grace. So our question, God, God who sees it all, how can we live a faithful life? Through the writer, through the pen to the writer of Hebrews, he says, you prepare. How do we prepare? You come to the throne of grace. How do we come to the throne of grace? Through the word, through your prayers, through community. Because when we come now, to the throne of grace in that fashion. The power of the Spirit of God frees us to grow in our maturity and to live ever more faithfully before the God who watches the apples and the cookies and us. God of grace, thank you. Thank you that you don't just call us to live faithfully, but you empower us to do so. You give us the strength. Lord, encourage us, inspire us, bless us to that end is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.